Hi, I'm sitting here with Dr. Paul Nicholas of the Applied Physics Labs at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Nicholas, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Nick. So to give you some background, um, Professor Nicholas used to be a professor of mine when I was taking some brief classes at George Mason University in an operations research class. And that's initially how I was introduced to you. Um, but your background's very interesting because I think the role that you play as a data scientist offers um, not a perfect linear trajectory to how people normally get to a position of data science. And I really wanted to dive into how you got to where you are today. So if you could give us a little bit of background how you got into the field of data science. Sure. Uh, so my background, uh, my training after uh, undergrad was primarily operations research, both my master's degree uh, from the Naval Postgraduate School and my degree at George Mason uh, were in operations research. Uh, and then I did uh, that for a number of years for the Marine Corps. Uh, so recently I uh, started working at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab uh, in a data science uh, centered group, uh, but a group that's trying to grow more of an operations research uh, capability. So I'm still able to do the things that are traditionally associated with operations research, but very quickly learning um, through osmosis mostly, uh, the data science field and uh, the way that data scientists approach similar problems. So what was your first introduction to operations research? Uh, I was looking through the course catalog of degrees that they offered at the Naval Postgraduate School. I knew I wanted to go to Monterey. I hear, being, <laughs> being from Monterey, I hear it's a good place. Yeah, it was a, a beautiful two years, though it was a whirlwind. Uh, so uh, my wife and I knew we wanted to go there after several deployments, uh, have a little bit of a break, get a graduate degree. It sounded interesting. I really didn't know much about it. Uh, there were very few people around me that, uh, that knew uh, what it was. The description was kind of nebulous, but it sounded interesting and difficult, and uh, it kind of jumped right into it. And what are some places um, and uh, functions you had while being deployed? Uh, so previous to becoming an operations research analyst, I was a communications officer in the Marine Corps. Uh, so two deployments of about a total of 20 months to Iraq, uh, setting up uh, and uh, installing communications networks. So radio, telephone, that kind of thing. Interesting. And you had talked about, I remember in class, doing some kind of survey research while you were there? Yes. So after graduating from the Naval Postgraduate School with a degree in OR, I got a secondary MOS as an operations research analyst. I started working for the Marine Corps uh, as a uh, civil, uh, as a uh, active duty member there. Got the opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan uh, in Regional Command Southwest, uh, so Helmand Province. And a lot of what we were concerned about there was, uh, quote, winning hearts and minds. You know, uh, concerned about the, the security situation on the ground, and we found surveys uh, to be. Uh, one of the few instruments we had out there to really get a gauge of what the, the populace was feeling. Uh, so there were a number of companies out there that did the survey research for us, uh, and we uh, took their results and tried to make sense of them. What are some of the challenges you ran into gathering survey data? So there's definitely challenges uh, with the culture there in Afghanistan, uh, though I'm certainly not an expert on it. Uh, it does seem uh, very focused on making sure that people are pleased with what you're saying. So they might, uh, when a perfect stranger comes into your house and starts asking you questions, you might be more prone to tell them what you think they want to hear. It's also very focused on what the village elder will uh, think and say. So it's difficult uh, to get maybe uh, opinions from people that are not that person. They might just be trying to reflect what that village elder. And I assume you were working through a translator when you were doing this? So I wasn't doing it directly. I was just working with the results oh, from okay. the surveys. Yeah. And what are, what are some of the issues, do you think, or lack thereof, that you had in regards to translation? 
Were, do you think you were picking up everything or was something lost? So I don't think it was the, uh, the translation so much as the, the survey instrument itself. So the people conducting the surveys uh, were from some organizations that weren't well regarded. They may have been caught uh, more than a few times filling out the bubble sheets in the back of a truck. Plus there's the issue of security. So the thing we wanted to know about is how secure do you feel and the areas we're most concerned about are those that are violent. But these people that are doing the surveys are you know, maybe college students, right? They're just trying to, to make a few bucks uh, conducting these surveys. They're not gonna uh, venture into the most dangerous parts of town and then start asking about, how do you feel about America? How do you feel about NATO? Uh, so we were certainly, uh, the surveys were not representative, I felt, of the true populace, uh, particularly those uh, most violent areas. So maybe some latent bias that you didn't? Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we knew it was there. It's just hard to gauge how bad it was. Right, right. And especially when you're paying a TA or an assistant undergrad to complete those surveys for you. Right. Yes. Um, so let's go into some, some questions about where you're working today. Can you give a day-to-day -day, um, chronology of, you know, what do you do when you get to work? What, what's the first thing? You know, are you reading reports? Are you reading blogs? How, how do you keep up? Um, kind of give us an impression of what your day at Johns Hopkins looks like. Sure. Uh, so Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab is more on the research side of uh, the defense and national security arena. Uh, we have good uh, ties, of course, with the university itself, uh, but we are very much focused on problems in the national security and intelligence community uh, realm. Uh, being not-for-profit, uh, there's not a big drive to go out and develop business. We don't even really use that term. Uh, you know, we're looking for a collaboration with sponsors. Uh, so that kind of takes the pressure off of, of needing to go out there and, and pound the pavement and bring in new work. Uh, we can fo focus more, more on the sponsor's uh, critical challenges. So a, a day-to-day basis, uh, my position is uh, more on the, the thought leadership level. Uh, I'm trying to balance my activities between the project management side on maybe one half of my brain and on the other side, uh, continuing to maintain uh, technical relevance, technical capability in an individual contributor role. So I, I get pulled back and forth. Uh, some days are completely swallowed up with meetings and emails. And, and, and I think we all know that feeling. Oh yes, yeah. So uh, just trying to coordinate some of the projects, trying to lead some of these uh, uh, small teams that I'm, that I'm in charge of. And then every once in a while, I'll, I'll get some time, usually late at night, <laughs> when I can code and when I can uh, dive into the details of a technical problem. Right. Uh, so it's, it's usually chopped up between those two activities. So how do you stay on top of be it latest technologies, uh, latest thinking in data science with so, this packed schedule that you have. So this is a great thing about teaching at the same time. So I'm a part-time uh, professor, adjunct professor at uh, George Mason University uh, and continue to do that uh, while I'm at uh, APL. Uh, and that, that the course, as you know, is very broad. It's really a poo-poo platter of all of these different analytic techniques, many of which I don't use uh, on a daily basis. So it's it really forces me to stay sharp on it mm -hmm. uh, to, to make sure that the, the uh, the material is relevant uh, and it forces me kind of outside my comfort zone. Uh, so that uh, helps tremendously. I have a reason uh, to, to uh, take up hours on the weekend uh, and, and read articles on, on what's, you know, what the latest is and, and keep the, uh, the content of the course fresh. And what's that saying? If you're able to teach something, then you truly understand it. <laughs> those who Does that apply? Those who can't do teach. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't, I didn't mean it in a derogatory sense. So we've talked about, um, kind of what you're doing at Johns Hopkins. We've talked about your background. Um, can you talk about if you've had any mentors in your life that have helped you 
grow as a data scientist? Certainly. So uh, several along the way have really uh, brought me where I am. Uh, I was teetering on the edge at one point in time between, uh, you know, a kind of a fork in my professional career. You know, which way do I go at this point in time? And a, uh, a good uh, friend and mentor from the Naval Postgraduate School uh, gave me some options and, and kind of opened my eyes to some options that I had never really considered. And it's people like that that uh, you, you've already developed a, a close relationship with them. You, you trust them, but they'll give you advice that's not necessarily even in their best interest. There may have been, um, uh, you know, particular reasons to guide me one way or the other. Uh, but uh, mentors, you know, go out of their way to, to do what's in your best interest, put themselves in your shoes and, and guide you along the path. Several uh, folks along the way have done that, and it's been uh, huge. So uh, even at APL, I've, I've picked up a, a mentor there, even, a, a, you know, mid-career professionals myself. There's still plenty to learn, and the APL way, as we call it, is, is different than another company. Uh, so uh, uh, finding a mentor there very early has been uh, very useful. And it's something I feel like I, I, uh, I want to pay forward. You know, it's mm -hmm. something that I, I want to give back to other folks that might follow behind me. So how do you, how do you find mentees? Uh, so I've had, I don't think I've had many. <laughs> they're not lining up at your door? No, they're really not. In the Marine Corps, they're kind of assigned to me. I feel maybe I've had a, a couple of success stories there with uh, uh, former Marines that I've worked with in the past. Uh, and then there's some students uh, that have, have uh, come to me and, and asked me for guidance along the way. Uh, but that's, that's uh, maybe a gaping hole. Um, uh, maybe I, I do need to give back more. I feel like that's, that's I've, I've benefited so much from mentors in my career so, so far that uh, I do need to give back and, and help others more. Is that something that's stressed in the Marine Corps? Absolutely, yes. So from the small unit leader level all the way up to general officer, it's all about taking care of your Marines. I think that could be very translatable to the academic life as well. Uh, at certain academic positions more than others, I think, uh, there's a big pressure to publish, a uh, big pressure to uh, do cutting edge research that is not really dependent on uh, mentorship. It's, it could be more dependent on the technology and, and getting out to conferences and, and more or less uh, leveraging people to help you conduct your research and maybe less on the mentorship side. Luckily, I've, I've uh, latched onto a couple of uh, academic mentors that, have, uh, that already have well-established uh, research reputations, and that's not one of their concerns. Their concern is giving back and, and helping others. So we're talking still about the academic aspect of your data science career. How do you feel that teaching has helped in your day to day? Well, I mentioned that uh, due to the particular course that I teach, it's very broad, keeps me out of my comfort zone. That's the master's in data analytics That's that right. George Mason you're referring to? That's right. Okay. So it's uh, OR 531, analytics and decision analysis. Very broad, uh, you could say shallow course covering <laughs> about 14 different topics across the analytics spectrum. I remember taking that course. It did not feel very shallow to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's certainly whirlwind. Uh, we, we only hit the wave tops of many different analy mm -hmm. analytic techniques. That benefits me from the perspective that it puts me outside my comfort zone. It forces me to teach things I don't normally think about. Uh, but it also uh, forces me to put things in terms of uh, two people that might not have a background in that. So there's folks in the class that come from statistics or uh, we've even had some uh, folks that are still in their undergrad uh, careers. They haven't graduated yet. Uh, and so needing to kind of boil things down uh, to the lowest common denominator, uh, I think that ability is important. Uh, you know, it's a, a clear sign of a charlatan when you can't explain it to someone that, you know, that's not a professional in your field. Uh, so that's certainly helped. 
both on the academic side and then on the, the business or research side, needing to explain uh, complex problems to sponsors that don't have degrees in operations research or statistics. They, right. they want to understand what's going on, but you need to explain it to them in, in terms that makes sense to them. And I know we've talked a lot about that with past folks we've interviewed with you know, applied mathematics backgrounds, operation research background, and um, how do you translate that? Uh, kind of the title of this podcast is Translating Nerd. And you know, how do you make that translation to you know, decision makers who have, come from a non-technical background? Sure. Uh, you really got to consider the audience. A lot of people um, use PowerPoint as a lingua franca of analysis, and I, I'm, I'm not necessarily opposed, but there's not a one shot, one kill. Here's the brief that's gonna work for everybody. You've gotta have different versions of the same presentation, same product that you're gonna give uh, to somebody like a general officer or an SES, someone way up there with very little time, really needs the, the boiled down brass tax version. And then someone maybe at the lower level that's interested in the details but doesn't have a mathematical background mm -hmm. would like more examples uh, uh, to, to help guide them through you know, what you've done and what you plan to do. Have you ever had to change the course of a, a briefing or a PowerPoint presentation mid-course based on the audience? Absolutely. So there's uh, the, the people in the Marine Corps you really need to worry about are the, the officers that call themselves dumb grunts. Those are the folks that are PhD level, off the charts intelligent. And they, they put out this facade of being a dumb knuckle dragger, and in fact, they're wicked smart. And they will ask you questions that you haven't thought about, and will knock you right off balance. Uh, so more often than not, it becomes a question of going into more detail than I expected to, rather than having to back off detail and, and go higher level. And I'm sure as a data science, you, you enjoy that. It depends. <laughs> I, don't, I don't enjoy losing a game of playing stump the chump. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Um, what are some, so let's go back to teaching at George Mason and the data analytics masters, which lack of better words, getting people to become data scientists in the world. If you were to go back and create an undergraduate major, we'll call it the Dr. Paul Nicholas School of uh, Data Science undergraduate, four years, what's that going to look like? In addition to the, the quantitative courses that you expect to find in a graduate you level You get course. clean slate, you get to develop all the courses. So I would put a surprisingly large dollop of liberal arts type courses in there. So stressing things like English and history and even things like philosophy because uh, liberal arts majors in general I think are better at thinking right off the bat than a lot of uh, engineering majors. Engineering majors come into it with a very mechanistic reductionist, uh, formulaic approach to problem solving. That makes my significant amount of liberal arts debt feel a lot better. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know you had a liberal arts background. Uh, undergrad was a liberal arts um, okay. and then a smattering of other things until I realized I need more quant background. Okay. So I think that's a, a, a good career progression, though most in the data science field have engineering, computer science type backgrounds. I think liberal arts is a, is a fantastic foundation for thinking and for being able to communicate and, uh, really empathizing with other people, um, trying to, to put yourselves in their position from a modeling and a, a decision-making standpoint. Uh, plus, being able to communicate. You know, in my class, I stress very much the ability to communicate clearly and concisely and really address your audience. That's not stressed in most engineering programs. So I would put a lot of that type of uh, work into this uh, horribly named Dr. Paul Nicholas undergrad <laughs> degree. Prestigious institution. <laughs> right. Uh, so, of course, the, the standard, standard math courses that you'd find in a graduate uh, level program, but also uh, courses, maybe seminars on modeling. 
I tried to frame a lot of what we do in OR 531 on uh, problem framing and uh, modeling a problem. I think that's a, uh, an art form that's developed with time. And so I think the graduate level is probably the best level, or probably best uh, academic level to pursue a degree in operations research or data science. You need kind of a, a solid background going into it. But uh, the ability to uh, think about this big, complex, squishy thing, break it up into smaller pieces, and then, and then uh, turn that into a decision problem, I think is uh, tough and an art form, and it's best uh, learned by practice. So maybe a, a series of seminars in the, in the undergraduate program where you do that. Uh, in my master's degree program, we really did that once. It's your thesis. In my PhD program, maybe did it a couple of times with smaller projects, and then of course the dissertation. You don't get a lot of practice. Most of what you're doing there is based on a book. Here's your problem, here's your perfect data set, go have fun. Uh, you very seldom get the opportunity, maybe once or twice in a, in a degree program, to, to really dive into an unstructured problem, mm -hmm. break it apart, and model it as, as a decision problem. Right. I was at a, a conference a week ago, and I remember them talking about putting in the repetitions, you know, putting in the reps to get better at something. Mm -hmm. And they quoted, I think it was Cicero and Yoda within the same, they both had the same quote. And I think Yoda said, there is no try, there is only do. And, you know, Cicero said something very a much more poetic language but essentially boiled down to the same point is that you can't get good by uh, observing you get good by doing mm -hmm. um, and especially within at least data science I've I've found that um, you know you can watch as many online MOOCs as you want when you're learning new technology but it's until you actually like you said roll up your sleeves and get busy with some you know messy data that you really start learning it absolutely so you've done a lot of work at George Mason with developing the Data Analytics Masters, correct? Uh, so we've gone through kind of a development in the course, kind of a, uh, starting with what uh, we had and, and modifying the course a little bit. But as overall, in terms of the, uh, the, the degree program itself, uh, not really. What, what are some hopes that you have for the students? What are some uh, technical skills that you'd say creates a well-rounded data analyst student coming out of this program? What they should be coming in with is ability to program. I fear that a lot of them are leaving the program without the ability to actually code. Um, so um, you know, one of the questions I think on your list is what's a skill that all data analysts need? Sorry to jump the gun on it, but they need to be able to program. They need mm -hmm. to be able to code R, Python, something like that. And I fear that a lot of our students are leaving the program without that ability. Um, and data science is a very wide field. There's people that are down in the, the trenches actually doing hardcore computer science. And the others, engineers of... Sure. And yeah. others more in the front office. They have a data science title, but really they're, they're more customer-facing. They're more uh, interested in business and, and project management. Uh, but for the folks that are in the middle to the, to the back end, uh, they really need to know how to code. So how do you fill that gap? Is it boot camps like General Assembly or things like that before you go into a master's program? I think they should be coming into the master's program with the ability to code. Mm. Yes. And so, boot camps are a great way to go. Yeah. So say, for example, you, uh, you're you putting in applications. You're about nine months from going to get your master's degree. Maybe you have some work experience in there. But you're coming from a liberal arts degree. You're, you, you, know, you want to go on the data science track, but you don't have a programming background. Um, if you have six months, what do you do as a student? Uh, bootcamp would be a great way to go. There's lots of free courses online. Uh, there's uh, courses that are very moderately priced. Uh, Linda and Coursera. Uh, there, there's the MOOCs out there that uh, Google even has a free Python course. Right, I've seen that. Um, so there's, there's lots of opportunities out there, but 
once you start getting the, the foundation underneath you, pull down a data set. Go to a data competition uh, website and pull C something down. Kaggle? Absolutely, yeah. Go to data.gov. Go get a, a dirty, messy data set and start playing around with it yourself. Answer, answer your own questions. Uh, just, you really need some uh, motivating case to, to get you in there and working. It's one thing to do the examples that they might do on lynda.com, but it's another to actually jump into a, a real life data set and start slicing and dicing. And it kind of creates a sense of ownership for the student too. Sure. I mean, I've seen that with people who get into analytics by you know, helping draft their fantasy football team or sure. be at sabermetrics with baseball. Sure. Um, I, I worked with one guy when I used to work um, at a polling firm talking about survey research, but he spent an entire year tracking, uh, he'd start a stopwatch when he left the house and when he got to work, and he created the most beautiful Excel spreadsheet of average times of various types of transportation, what the weather was like that day, uh, and really took ownership over this little project he has created. And he was in by no means um, you know, a programmer, um, but you could see a sense of ownership within that type of stuff. That's an impressive individual. It takes a lot of... Uh intrinsic motivation. I think uh, something like a data science competition with a deadline and per, uh, potentially a prize at the end for most individuals might be uh, an easier target to reach for. Right. I've, I've found, at least in my own experience, if I sign up for like a Coursera or a Linda with no deadline or no financial, right. if I'm not on the line, uh, one course that worked very well, at least for me personally, and I've seen with a lot of data science friends, is the Udacity line. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you pay $200 a month, you finish it however long it takes, and it'll kick your butt, but you're still paying 200 a month. So right. um, I guess as in the behavioral economist in us says, you know, incentives matter. Sure. Uh, let's get into your own skill set. We've talked a lot on this podcast on the website about the, the T model from the book Analyzing the Analyzers. And the T, essentially the vertical is, you know, what is your core competency? What are you known for? And the uh, horizontal upper bar of the T are the slivers of areas that you're capable on your own, but you might need some Google searching. Mm -hmm. How would you uh, describe your, your T? Uh, so probably if I had to pick a single word to describe myself, it would be modeler. Uh, so somebody that can look at that big problem, uh, try to figure out what is actually being asked and, and, and uh, breaking it apart into smaller problems. Uh, on the technical side, I really like optimization. So that, that was my uh, dissertation focus. Uh, that's basically um, the big hammer that I chase around. Anything that looks like a, a nail, I will hammer with my optimization <laughs> hammer. Uh, so planning family vacations must be a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, we've got spreadsheets. For in, traveling in salesmen uh, on the road. Yeah, oh, and Disney World uh, ride, uh, uh, the traveling salesman going through the park. We figured all that out. Uh, so <laughs> your kids are going to be geniuses. And my wife is an enabler too. She loves, uh, she loves doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a bad combination, but, um, I do preach and I should practice it, uh, having a larger toolkit, being able to apply lots of different skills, or at least being able to know about them, know that not every problem is an optimization problem. There are other techniques that are more appropriate for certain, uh, certain types of problems. So finishing, there's one last question that we always ask, and it's to explain something very complex. It can be something like uh, the evolutionary type op optimization that you would teach in, in class, or it can be something completely different like neural networks. But I'd like you to explain something for us, imagining that the listeners are 100% non-technical background. Mm -hmm. So I was dreading this question because I wasn't uh, sure exactly who would be listening to it. Uh, so, bunch of liberal arts degrees. Just yeah. imagine that. So many people, when they first take their 
first or second or fifth statistics course are intimidated by the idea of hypothesis tests. Uh, the concept of it, it's cute that we get to write these little subscripts with O's and A's, but what it really means is kind of beyond us. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll crank through it and we'll come up with some sort of p-value and we'll write down what we think we're supposed to write down, but really understanding it at a deeper level, uh, for me, didn't come until I had that fifth or sixth statistic course uh, down the road. Really what it all boils down to is finding a signal in the noise. It is a signal to noise ratio problem. And you know, I look at the microphones that we're using to record this podcast. We're, we're concerned about signal over the noise. We're concerned about capturing the signal in our voices over any sort of background noise that we have around us. That is essentially what a hypothesis test is doing. At a certain level of sig uh, significance, we want to see how strong that signal is in this big, vast, noisy data set, whatever it is, maybe it's a, a basket of goods type analysis. We want to, to see how strong that signal is and at what level we can say uh, this result is true. So the vast majority of hypothesis testing really boils down to that, to a signal to noise ratio problem. That is, I, I really wish you were there during my first hypothesis testing lecture. That would have cleared <laughs> things up so much. Um, one last point, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, somebody's curious about work you've done, how do they go about doing that? So I have a uh, website at George Mason, and there's a link there to my email address. So All right. that would be a good way to contact me. So along with that, and hopefully uh, a little more information I can pry out of you, uh, we'll put that on the website for listeners to take a look at. All right. All right, Dr. Nicholas, thank you a lot for coming. All right, thanks a lot, Nick.